Hey everyone, welcome to the 33rd episode of Baseline Intelligence, the podcast designed to make you a better tennis player and a smarter athlete. I'm your host, Jonathan Stokey. Today's guest is Lindsay Davenport. Lindsay won 55 WTA singles titles, three Grand Slams, and an Olympic gold medal in 1996. She was ranked number one in the world in both singles and doubles, and also won three doubles Grand Slams. She was inducted into the International Tennis Hall of Fame in 2014, and Tennis Magazine voted her as the 29th best tennis player of all time. On today's episode, we discuss how she formed her technical base, her return targets under pressure, and her X factor for improving quickly. So sit back, relax, and prepare to become a smarter tennis player. All right, Lindsay, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to have you on. I think you're my first Hall of Famer. You've won three single slams, three double slams, an Olympic gold, Fed Cups, and probably 18 other things that I'm not mentioning now. So you had an incredible career, but they all start somewhere. And so I was wondering if you could just share when you got your start and maybe how old you were when you started to think maybe you could be pretty good at this. Uh, it's such a funny thing in this sport, especially, I, I feel more than any other, every single player's like story and path and journey is so incredibly different. And, you know, I, I heard stories about kids that were born and I think it was Jennifer Capriotti was doing sit-ups and like, you know, she's like six months old and <laughs> Stefano was like, this is what's going to happen. Or you hear the great story of Venus and Serena, how Richard, you know, was like, I'm going to do this with my two daughters. I'm like the total accidental tennis player story. I came from um, a family of volleyball players. My dad was an Olympic volleyball player. He was six, seven, six, eight. And so it was like my, both my older sisters played volleyball. It was like, okay, uh, Lindsay's the tallest of the three girls. We're going to get her into volleyball. But back then you really didn't start until you're like 12 or 13. I was the youngest of three and my parents were looking for anything to get me to do after school. They put me like in swim team and I didn't love that. They put me in soccer and I got kicked in the shin and had to get all these stitches. So at like six or seven, my mom put me in um, like the after school tennis clinic at the local club. And that's like truly how it started. I just wanted to always keep playing, you know, in, especially in the beginning, the more fun it is for younger kids the more they're going to stick to it. And I still remember, um, I, it was this little club, it was called South End in Torrance, California. And it was just all about that goofy, fun, playing tennis, um, giving the kids the ball to go warm up on the backboard, back wall, and then like just playing. And I just fell in love with it right away. Uh, never wanted to stop, always was going to the club. And then a bit of luck happened right when I was about nine or 10, I joined the club's like team tennis team. And, um, you know, when you go around playing other clubs and we went around and we played like the rival club in Torrance called West End. And I played number one that day and I played against a girl named Stephanie Lansdorp. My mom, who was like literally one of the most friendly people alive, started talking to her mom and they talked the whole eight game pro set. And by the end of it, she had convinced my mom that since I was Stephanie's age and I showed some potential, I should come to her husband's academy clinic and try it. She was trying to get people her same, her daughter's same age to keep playing tennis. And so that was kind of the story. I ended up going over there. Robert Landstorp is one of the greatest coaches, um, technical coaches of all time. And it literally, truly was just by happenstance and accident that the stars kind of aligned for all that to fall in place. It's so funny. He's a name. I was born in California, but I didn't start playing tennis until I moved to the East Coast. And Landstorp, I've never seen him in person 
but it's like he's just like he's this like mythological figure like everyone's just oh just a genius and he's coached so many great players were there any technical principles that he taught you kind of in those early years that you felt like stuck with you throughout your entire career that helped you be great yeah i have to, it's so funny because i have four kids now they all play different sports and all of it goes back. I have one basketball player, one volleyball player, one who plays tennis and, and one who kind of just does whatever. But everything I look for now, a technical coach in the beginning. I'm like, you guys, I, you guys have to get everything down and it has to become like autopilot. Um, so like my basketball girl, she takes this two, two times a week with just a technical coach on the shot. I'm like, if, the, if everything isn't perfect, it's going to break down under pressure. And that was Robert Landstorp's biggest uh, gift to me, certainly. And it was thousands, I can't even tell you, thousands and thousands of ground strokes, um, being able to kind of hold that technique. You know, it was a little bit different back then. We're talking about the mid 80s, right? When I was about 10, 11, 12, you know, so it was all about kind of following through perfectly, kind of holding the follow through at the end. It's so much different now. You know, people are with the grips and the string and the rackets. It's the, the technique has changed. So the technique that I learned was, you know, where do you make contact with the ball? What is your body doing? And can you hit this 400 times and keep it all together? Um, My 60-minute lesson, I eventually graduated to two 60-minute lessons a week and the academy. And in my lessons, it was like 80% ground strokes in trying to get the form absolutely perfect, being able to hit cross court. He was really big on cross court. So it was like always, like always, can you get a cross court from wherever you are on the court that requires, you know, early contact. And it was just drilled into my brain as a youngster um, over and over again until it kind of, you know, just clicks and becomes able to kind of stand up in the most pressure moments. You mentioned thousands of balls. I've heard that his goal was for you to hit you or any other player you had was to hit 1500 balls in a lesson, which I was trying to do the math. Oh my gosh. Is that right? I've actually never heard that, but I would imagine that's true. (laughs) Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm doing, I'm like teaching my kids here and I'm like, man, I'm at like 600 and I feel like I fed a lot. And and they said he just drilled it. You just ball after ball. Were you able, is it just because you love the game that you were able to focus for that many balls for that hour? Isn't that the X factor? I feel like in an individual sport, like is the player wired to be able to just be out there by themselves, block out a lot of other crap and just be able to hit and hit and hit. And I have three daughters. Uh, My husband thought we'd have four tennis players. They are not wired like that. And we learned that as they were going, they all played for five, six years. And it was like, they do not enjoy, they're not wired to be able to go do that. And if you're not having fun or you don't see the challenges in that, I think that's where tennis can lose a lot of young players in terms of what it takes mentally out there. Even when things are going well, just to be able to do the same thing over and over, it's like, it's crazy. Right? It's like, oh my gosh, if I had another forehand. But for, for us, we, you know, we had little goals and lessons, you know, the target spaces would get smaller and smaller where we're trying to hit. And if you didn't do it, you were running. You know, he was like always famous at 20 at the baseline, 50 at the baseline, kind of whatever he threw at you that day. Um, so you were kind of challenged at the same thing. And for whatever reason, it resonated with me. Um, while I was social and, and had friends, you know, I felt safest I felt happiest just kind of being on my side of the court you know trying to do that and I 
adored him. And some people had this love-hate relationship with him. He was amazing to me. Um, we had a lot of laughs. He's very tough, but um, I kind of saw through that early on and was able to really kind of connect with him. And that certainly helped my time on the court also with him. I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, you try to hit a target and maybe you had some running if you didn't. And at Duke, especially, you know, some of the sports psychologists there, hey, don't use running as a punishment. And <laughs> I, I, I had that. I had that as a junior growing up and it worked wonders for me because I didn't like running. And so it narrowed my focus and it kept me engaged and it made me practice with pressure. Right. Like there was a consequence for failing and that's real life. What is your I, I know you work with your son a little bit and you've you've mentored a couple pro players. What's your take on that as far as having some type of punishment in a practice like that? It's so weird now, right? In this era, it doesn't seem like you should be able to threaten, right, with performance or whatever. Um, I'm all about the punishment in terms of effort, like always. Like, this is crazy. And, like, I'm not not wasting my time out here. And I say that to my son. I, I don't have to say much, like, over the years. But a couple times, I'm like, this is just a complete waste of my time. So when you're ready to go, let me know again. But growing up, I mean, those were the consequences, so I, I'm fine with it, but probably because I grew up with it. But I know that a lot of this day and age, it's not appropriate. But let me tell you, it sure made me focus on trying to hit like that little tiny, you know, little castle of four tennis balls on the court and try and really zone my target in. Right. So you develop the strokes. And then one thing a lot of amateurs or juniors have is, you know, they develop all these different shots and you have all these different options. And then how do I use them? When do I use them? What type of player am I? How did you navigate that process early on in your career? Yeah, I didn't have a lot of problems with that. Um, you know, you see these players that are so talented. They have all these different shots. Um, I could see how you can get kind of tripped up on the court, right? Do I slice this one? Do I come in? Do I stay back? What do I do here? You know, my game was pretty one-dimensional, but sometimes you have to be kind of realistic with what you are given. I was not blessed with a lot of quick, twitch muscles or a lot of quick foot speed, there's just no chance that I was going to be able to kind of, you know, be a defender, the defensive type of player. I think that's really important also for kids after they reach a certain age, certainly don't pigeonhole yourself like too young or whatever, because everything, you know, kind of changes in puberty and you just never know what happens. But you do have to be realistic about what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are. So a big thing was with me was how do I not want to see this match go? Okay. I do not want to see myself four feet behind the baseline. I do not want to see my opponent ripping return winners or, you know, I, I kind of, I almost went to towards my game and my mid teen years and into the pro uh, levels more in that kind of phase. And, you know, I had to take a lot of risk. I had to go for a lot of shots and sometimes I'd have to kind of swallow the the high number of unforced errors. But the truth of the matter was, I didn't want to have to hit too many shots running to the corners. So it's really tried to perfect a game of first strike tennis. Like how, like I'd spent so many, much time on returns. It was crazy. Like get, you know, especially in women's tennis, as opposed to men's tennis, there's a real opportunity there to get ahead in the rally returning, especially second serves. So how do I be able to make every single return and hit them where I want to hit? That was a big focus. So I felt like I had a pretty good handle on how I wanted my game to look. I didn't, I'm not maybe blessed with the crazy hands or the ability to kind of change it up, which obviously would get me in trouble when I wasn't playing A-level tennis. But 
I had a pretty strong conviction and I always looked for a coach that had that kind of same conviction of how does my game look when I'm playing my best? How's my game going to look if I'm going to try and win a slam um, and then kind of go, go at it from there. Can you share some of your best tips that you either received from coaching or that you just kind of learned through experience for hitting a better return to serve? You know, it's so funny because one, you have to have great recognition of your opponent. And so obviously you go in the pro tour, that's pretty easy. So you're going to play, you know, a junior tournament and you don't know who your opponent is. You got to teach your player, try to, to clue in early. And I do that with my son sometimes. I'm like, dude, watch him serve in the warmup. Like, just get a sense of it. Like, is it a heavy kick if we've never seen the kid play or whatever? Even in, in like club level tennis, use the first return game or use the warm up, use two return games to try and get a feel. How how heavy is it coming at me? Obviously, what's the spin? Is it is it a slice serve? Is it a kick serve? What happens with the second serve? And you can also tell also, I always was kind of trained, I would look at the technique. You know, you can tell like a really good service motion okay, that's probably not going to break down. So, you know, maybe I don't want to get closer to the service line than the baseline and really kind of pick up on that quickly. In pro tennis in this day and age, it's obviously you can pull up anyone on YouTube. So the pros have a pretty much bigger advantage now than we did, you know, 30, 25 years ago uh, coming out there. And then what what are the patterns you want to set up? You know, I, I never liked taking, for instance, personally, on the deuce side, it was really hard for me to take my forehand line. I practiced it and practiced it, and I never felt great about it. So I would switch my target either hard middle right at the server or deep cross or short cross. And those were kind of my three, for instance, on the do side. Those were the ones I would focus on. I would sit there and I would practice this line return, and I would be like, I, I don't feel it. Okay, no problem. We've got three other returns we can go to. And they're different. The forehand deep cross was different than the forehand short cross. And so then I just really would go about it like in that regard. What is the one you feel most comfortable with at five all deuce in the third? And go from there and try and get an understanding of my own shot in in that regard. So if you had that preset, it, deuce court, they serve forehand, big point, and you know you're going to go cross. Maybe it's short, maybe it's deep, but you have that. And let's say that person is a righty and they have an awesome forehand. Did that ever factor in or did you just say, hey, I'm going with my best against your best and I'm just going to see how it all plays out? Uh, that's so funny. On occasion, or I would then switch it to hard deep middle. <laughs> like, yeah, I, you know, it was funny because I was like, I was obviously a big hitter and sometimes big hitters or, I mean, when I grew up, they, they loved calling it big, big tennis. Like that, I think Mary Carrillo started that and that was the thing. But there was like a kind of associated with not thinking, just slapping balls. And that really couldn't be farther from the truth. Like I am like my mind, I'm like an overthinker. I can't, you know, like making decisions for my kids. I like explained to my husband, my husband's like, wow, I, I don't know where you come up with five scenarios for that. If we're taking them to practice at four or not. And that would happen to me on court. So I was always kind of trying to figure out if I go here, where's my opponent going? What shot do I want my opponent hitting at this time? But I would ideally you want to get in a position where my best is better than everybody else's best. doesn't always happen that way. But, you know, hopefully you, you can develop your shots like that. But you, you, I did have to adjust quite often. You meant, so you just said hard middle and Jessica Bagula, who I lived with her when she was seven. I've known her forever. And she mentioned on her two episodes that that's a go-to play for her on a big point. So you 
are one of the top 30 players ever, men and women, and she is currently top three in the world. And you guys are saying, hey, we like to hit middle a lot on big points. And yet when I watch amateurs or juniors, a lot of wide airs, they're trying so hard to do things. Why do you think it's so difficult for the amateur or the lower level junior to kind of grasp that concept that deep middle is a good play? Because I think sometimes if you're if it's not perfected, short middle sucks, right? <laughs> and then, you know, they, they think like, oh, I'm going to go middle, you know, and then it's kind of like a block in the middle and then you're going to get in trouble. It's an absolutely committed return. And, you know, it's tough to convince people the bigger the point, you actually got to swing more, right? It's like, it, it, it happened it, to the best of us in the biggest moments, but of course you're like, oh, I just want to make this. You pull up with your body, you stop swinging. And then that's disaster also. And they're like, oh, I tried to go middle. No, no, middle is off your front foot. You're driving. All you're really trying to do is take the lines out of play and get it closer to the baseline than the service line. That was kind of my goal. You know, Wimbledon, it's different now because the players have different movement patterns on the grass. But after that first week was done, like in the late 90s, my target was always that brown patch right in front of the baseline. And you could kind of like dial it in really well on grass because it, it would die. And of course, we had like Pete Sampras serving and volleying that path like the whole time. So the court would get chewed up or Pat Rafter. Now the court doesn't look like that, but that was it. And it was like, OK, those are where the returns are going. Try finding that off on grass. Um, but if it's not hit well, it, it, it's not going to go well. And I think sometimes people get scared off about that. That's a great point. I like that phrase, short middle sucks. I might make a t-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so you kind of had your game and your first strike. You know what you want to do. But were there any players on tour back when you played that you felt like did a really good job of getting you out of that or making you uncomfortable or making you play like your B game? Yeah. I mean, obviously, like all of a sudden in – so I first played my first event in 91, and it was really the mid-90s. Uh, kind of more late 90s when they hit their stride. I mean, now we have Venus and Serena. So here's two players that hit as hard as I do from the back of the court, um, serve harder, and obviously, and, and I'm talking about the 90s version of the Williams, right? They obviously <laughs> elevated their game quite a bit, and now they can touch any single ball on the court. Like, they are way better movers, and they're offensive players, and they have power, and it was like, oh, I am toast here. So, you know, okay, so what are the ways around that? And I found it definitely much tougher for me. Like, where are the weaknesses? It was easier in the early days to kind of find some weaknesses in Venus's game. The forehand when she first came up was not the shot it was as her career went on. She she had much more doubt on that side. A little bit like Goff, not quite as extreme, but, you know, you, you see Goff and the backhand so natural and the forehand's not quite as natural that's how it was with Venus. And then I'd go on the court with Serena and I just look at my coach, like, really? Like, where's my safe spot to go? Back then she would sometimes make some errors or whatever. I mean, again, we're talking about late nineties, like early 2000 years, but that was like, if I play my best against these guys, I, I'm not guaranteed to win. And, and, and for most of the other opponents I faced, it was like, okay, if I can play my best, I can do this. At least muster up that hope. With these guys, it was like, I got to play really close to my best and hope that maybe Serena has kind of an off day also. So that was super humbling when that that kind of dynamic uh, arrived in women's tennis. I see a lot of players, if they play a higher seed or someone who's you know just a much better player, they feel that pressure and it leads to overplaying and then they just end up playing really poorly. So they lost to a great player, but you almost beat yourself because you were so intimidated and kind of knew that my best might not be good enough. 
Did you struggle with that at all, just kind of staying within yourself, or did you feel like you were trying to elevate and kind of play A-plus tennis, and sometimes that led to more errors? Yeah, uh, all of it. You know, I always had a lot of anxiety before going out to a court. You know, I'm for whatever reason, I'm more wired as like a worst-case scenario, and I'd be like, oh, gosh, what if I don't win a game? And it was like, <laughs> everyone around me is like, oh, my God, like, you're seated one here, you're seated two here. And it was like, so it always kind of took me a while to kind of calm that down. The one thing that I think happens a lot is a lot of players are defeated not only by their opponent, and we're talking about, you know, the highest levels, especially at the majors, but also the court and the scenario and um, the anticipation of this match or sometimes playing on a certain court for the first time. Or, you know, the top players have a huge advantage in terms of courts the environment at a lot of the majors, sometimes those ma those show courts actually play differently than the outside courts, but the top players are there. They're practicing on them. They get to play matches on them. So a lot of times I would always feel like in the earlier rounds, okay, get off here, just be ready to go the first game or two. And sometimes just the whole situation could have been worth three or four games. And it's all of a sudden it's three love, four one before the other players really even made 20 balls. And you're like, okay, then players start to force things. Then they start to feel like, okay, how am I going to get in this? Then I feel like the errors start to come. When you have to, when you feel like you have to overplay or play your best, there's obviously a certain level of anxiety. And it's only a couple of times that then I feel like the player then can really actually have that happen. For Personally, for me, I had to stay as relaxed as possible. Obviously not easy to do and make it as simple as possible. Like what are the patterns? Where, where do you want to serve? And just try and go out about it and focus on like the first two or three shots in a rally. There aren't many opponents when you played that probably made you feel that way because you were one of the best players. But were there any other mental or emotional hurdles that you felt like you had to overcome to kind of reach that full potential? You know, a, a lot of different little hurdles along the way. Um, when I first came on the Pro Tour, there were so many players that had all this variety. Like one-handed backhands were real in women's tennis in the 90s, where you had like Sabatini, Novotna, Conchita Martinez, even someone like Tazier. I mean, there was all these players that had a style that I didn't see in the juniors, especially growing up in California. It was, you know, everyone was had started to learn more the Chris Everett style, this great, you know, technique, more two-handed backhands. Wasn't tons of variety growing up in the States. In terms of that, all of a sudden I came on the pro tour and I have like Sabatini, like knifing one at my toes, drop shotting me, moonballing me. And, you know, everything that she could do to get it like out of my strike zone. So how do you combat that when you're a, a very flat, hitting ground stroke girl from California. So my coach at the time, Robert Vantop, I mean, we spent years, months and hours and countless hours of being able to kind of handle that game style. At one point, I think I was 0-7 against Conchita Martinez. And like every time I was about to go out there, I was like, oh my God, I can't stand this. Like I'd get angled, I'd get drop shot. I'd, she'd pull me in, she'd lob me. And it was like, it was like embarrassing. And I was in the top 10 in the world. And I would like literally look at the draw. I would rather play Graf than Conchita. It was like Graf slice is hard. I know how to, I can kind of, you know, finagle that. And literally we had like specific practices weekly on how to play Conchita or Gabby or someone like that. And after a couple of years, like it was like literally one of the like things I was like most proud of. I like turned the rivalry around. I was like, all of a sudden I'm like, I just won five in a row against her, you know, like, but it was so hard, but it took so much effort and like concerted effort 
against just one playing style for me to kind of feel comfortable with that. Like, listen, you're going to have to go through these players at a quarter of a major or semi of a major. We got to get this down. And it was like, oh, but I finally did. Um, That was kind of my big challenge there for a couple of years in the mid 90s. Then I felt like then I had to really then focus on it changed it kind of every five to seven years. Then it was like all about fitness and the Williams sisters. And I got to be able to get to like one more ball every rally or get in position a little bit better. So I felt like there was always these kind of blocks of, of things that I had to improve on throughout, you know, my 16, 17 years playing pro tennis. I think it's so fascinating that, you know, you're such an accomplished player and you're saying it took years and hours and all this to battle, you know, that kind of slice from a Conchita. And it's like, I'll give a lesson to someone and we'll work on something at the end. They're like, doesn't feel any better. Like what's going on here? Yeah. And I'm like, hey, oh my you know, God. do you know how hard it is to improve at anything? And so a player of your stature going, hey, you know what? It took me whatever it was, seven or eight matches and over the course of years and all these practices, I just find that so fascinating that you had to go through that long of a struggle for that. But then the amateur might go like, hey, it's been a week. Like what's going on here? <laughs> and, and get embarrassed along the way, like on the biggest stages. Like it was like, I remember one match, it was like one, six, one, four. And I'm like, I, I think I was crying. I was like, I feel so stupid out here. Um, but it literally was one of like the smallest, biggest accomplishments, if that makes sense. Like I had because... Then as we turned the corner in like the 2000 years, like anyone had a slice. I was like, oh, I love this. Like now I have so much time. I'm like, oh my God, I'm going to just like, I got this. And so it always kind of make us smile. And it was like kind of like an inside joke because it was so tough between the ages of 15, 16 to like 20. And I'm like, God, I don't get this. But it took hours. And, you know, it's funny because whenever I go on the court with my son now um, and I don't hit with him often, I'm always feeding like junk balls like I hate when people just feed perfectly you know they're just rallying so I'm always like on the side and I'm like dumping a backhand feed or a forehand feed or like a super high top spinny feed and he's onto it but it's like yeah you have to get used to being able to drive up and out of your strike zone at your ankles like wherever it is and it's not just like perfectly fed right to you like a hitting partner so I kind of have definitely taken that with me to like my my after tennis life you mentioned working with your son a little bit and you kind of coached, mentored Madison Keys for a bunch of years. Not all great players make great coaches, but you clearly have done something right. Your son's on a great path. Madison did well. How would you kind of describe your coaching philosophy? Well, first of all, um, you know, I'm, it's funny because it's exactly right. Like it really depends on the connection. And in my like two cases, I mean, one's my son who I think the world of, and one is Madison who I talk to every day still. I mean, she's playing in Dubai right now and she lost like an hour or two ago and we were like exchanging all these texts. Like I love these people. So they know that I will give my heart and soul to them. So it's funny because I am, my dad was really tough, but in like, it's hard to describe it like in a loving way, but he was the first to tell us like, Jesus, that was awful. Like, what was that? Like, I'd be, I had him stop watching me play at like 12 or 13 because I'm like, dude, I can hear you. <laughs> like, it's not funny anymore. Um, and so sometimes I'm like caught between that. Like I'm out on the court, like, you know, like what the heck was that? Like, come on. But I do also have a lot of empathy because I do know how tough it is and it is crazy. But first is, you know, you, I, I don't care if it's short, you know, sometimes like a 60 to 90 minute practice total for the whole day 
can be great if you can give, you know, a hundred percent and you're moving and you're this and that. I definitely didn't, I wasn't raised with like, okay, we're going to spend five, six hours out here. You know, it's like, you know, let's get it done short, sweet. If it has to be obviously at other times you got to go more. Um, but also, I mean, probably because I played like that, you know, I was a hitter and I wanted to see, I'd love to see Madison hit. Like I'd love to see when she's set up for her forehand and using it the right way. Um, be consistent with her backhand, really look for the forehand, be comfortable moving for it, and don't kind of bail out. Sometimes I feel like she'll get in a forehand cross-court rally and, and pull the trigger because she kind of panics. Like, no, no, you've got to stay in that. You've got to be a little more disciplined. Um, I don't think that I would make a great coach for, let's just give an example, you know, a player that's maybe smaller and super fast. I'm not a good coach. I say that very honestly. I'd love helping those two people, but I, I don't know if I would relate so much to a game style that I wasn't so familiar with. Is there anything you've learned through coaching and mentoring that you wish you could go back and tell yourself at say age 14 or 15? You know, I wish all the time that I, I could go back. Like I really felt like the weight of the world. And let me, let's just be honest. This was before social media. This was like about newspaper articles. Like it was like, it couldn't have been, easier back then compared to what this generation has to go through in terms of, you know, social media bullying or people being able to capture every single second of their life on someone's cell phone, filming them like that would have broken me. So I wish I could go back and be like, you have no idea how good you have it right now. Yes. Some people are writing about you in a newspaper and there's a couple thousand fans talking about you, but that's really it. Like you could kind of escape it and, and you really can't these days. The other thing is like, you know, you never know what path it's going to go. I mean, and a lot of people say this, you never know when it can end. I was so lucky that I got to start at 15 and end when I wanted to. I saw so many players in between that time be forced out of the game, go through kind of crazy things. I wish I would have enjoyed it more. Everyone kind of says that also. It felt like a tremendous burden. It felt like a lot of pressure to kind of live up to whatever that is, ranking or expectation or, oh, wow, I won majors. Is it a failure if I don't win this U.S. Open? It seemed like that when I was playing instead of like, holy moly, you just got to the semis and that was great. And you lost to Serena, who, by the way, in 20 years is going to be the greatest player of all time. You know, but at that moment, it was like, well, I won it four years ago. So this was a failure. So I wish I could go back to being a little bit kinder to myself. I mean, I think everyone kind of says that when every, everything is said, all said and done. But I think it would have made it a little bit more enjoyable, the whole process of, of being a top player and having those expectations. So we're going to finish up with a couple Instagram questions. Uh, the first person said, you've achieved a lot of incredible things, but what achievement are you most proud of? <laughs> and if in terms of tennis, you think? Uh, I'll, leave, I'll leave it open-ended. Yeah, I mean, I, I have two things. Like, um, well, I have four kids. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. I have three that are really, really polite and well-behaved. I'm really proud of that. <laughs> Most people that come across um, my kids are like really have some kind words to say. Obviously, they don't have perfect days every day, but um, I love them, like all parents. I love hanging out with them and um, my family and I think my whole life that I was able to create after tennis. I see a lot of athletes that in any sport that maybe struggle in kind of that second life or the afterlife. And I have to say, I love my life so much after tennis. And so much of that is due to my husband, but also just our family so awesome. So that is 
that is just, you know, I don't, I'm proud of, I'm so lucky, but um, that was awesome. In terms of tennis, I will say the 96 Olympics have always been kind of like a special place in my heart. My dad was an Olympian in 1984. The Olympics came to Los Angeles. I was eight years old and both my parents were working the volleyball event. It was held in Long Beach. They were gone all day. My dad was refing. My mom was one of the scorekeepers. They were like gone. I have a sister who's 16 years older. So she was like watching myself and my other sister and was taking us to all these events. And like, I remember her and her then soon to be husband, like explaining to me, like, okay, this is what happens at swimming. And we went to the cycling at uh, the, the velodrome there. Uh, we went to opening ceremonies. Like, I'm like, so who's lighting the torch? Like, and they explained to me, it's a surprise. Like everything about the Olympics was like in my family. Um, never thought I'd be able to go to an Olympic. Then I made the team in 1996. And my dad, again, was working the volleyball venue there. And, like, I came out of nowhere to win the gold. And, like, my family was all there. And it was crazy emotional for them. And it was, like, it literally is the biggest highlight of my career. Now, it sounds weird as a tennis player saying that because you grow up, like, I want to win the U.S. Open. But the Olympics in my family were, like, the biggest deal. And it was the only one that my whole family was there at. So I always kind of point to that as like, literally, it was like the greatest professional day of my life. That is so cool. So I'm sure you played a bunch of pressure points in the Olympics, but this person wanted to know, did you do anything differently tactically or just with a thought on bigger points in a match, say a match point or a break point? I would, I mean, like anybody, I would get so nervous. And I think, you know, in tennis, you can't hide. Like, you know, you're in a team sport. I tell my daughter who plays volleyball all the time. I'm like, girl, you, there's like, you know, 20% chance you're going to see the ball. I'm like, imagine tennis. Like you play so many mind games with yourself. Anyone who's played the sport knows that. I was not wired to be like, this is it. Break point. I'm going to rip a winner. I was more wired like, oh my God, don't miss. (laughs) And in terms of my worst case scenario mindset, which is awful. So, you know, I went through this period of like, all of a sudden I'd come off the court and my coach is like, this happened in Sydney, actually. I was playing Monica Sellis for the first time. I think I had two match points and lost in three thirds at breaker. And I came off the court and my coach is like, okay, I never want to see you hit a first serve at 89 miles an hour on match point. I was like, I know, but I I just, I thought she'd miss and I didn't want to double fall. And he was like, the great players aren't going to miss. So just put that in your mind. You're now at this level. That's not going to cut it. It was really great, you know, for me to hear, I had to go through it, you know, obviously. And then, you know, I would get to certain points and all of a sudden I was like trying to make balls. And he's like, you never try and make balls, but all of a sudden on match point, you're like not trying to miss. <laughs> like, and so we would work through it though. And that was part of like the beauty. So he's like, okay, so this is the deal. If it's, you know, truly ad side, they serve to your forehand, you're going here do side they serve here you're going here you're going to go cross court or you're going to hit every ball to the players you know backhand whatever it is and like we really tried to simplify it so I could still feel like I could hit out and it took you know a lot of time but I I was I definitely struggled with kind of the nerves on those big points so okay we just went into very specific patterns and that that kind of helped me in a lot of cases but you know I I don't know. I I have the most respect for Rafa, who's just like, this is it, like the biggest point ever. And I can't wait to rip a forehand winner. It was kind of more of a struggle for me to get to that mentality throughout my career. This person wanted to know, was there an important match in your career that you kind of like won ugly or got through knowing you didn't play well? And if so, how did you get that done? Hmm. Wow. Um, 
I feel like probably almost everyone. I feel like in every kind of um, <laughs> kind of path to a Grand Slam, I won three, and there was always one match in that tournament that I can pinpoint and say that kind of helped me get through it. And, and so that's so weird. At the U.S. Open that year, I played Amanda Coetzer in, I believe it was the quarterfinals. And it was like one of those crazy windy days. It was like, it felt like 30 miles an hour out on Arthur Ashe. Um, it was like, oh my gosh, this would be so tough against a player who doesn't miss. And it was ugly and gro- like bad tennis. I couldn't really get a clean hit on the ball because it was so crazy windy. Arthur Ashe Stadium Court used to be the windiest court in tennis before they added like the roof. Once they put the roof on, even when it's open, it really, for whatever reason, it kind of changed the whole flow of the wind down there. You would walk on the court on a pretty still day and it would just be like, vroom, like crazy going across the court one way. So then when it was windy in New York, that court, it was so impossible to play. That match was not pretty. I actually gutted it out, which, you know, kind of helped me kind of turn that U.S. Open around. I always go back to one match in my career that I did not win. I was seven, 16 years old, I think, at a U.S. Open. I was unseated. I made it through to the round of 16, and I played Gabriella Sabatini. This was my first and last U.S. Open where I played matches on the outside courts, the first three rounds. Those were some of the best feelings ever because when you're an American player and the hardcore tennis fans know who you are, I was still only 16. They were like all coming out to those back courts, and there was an atmosphere like I'd never had. It was like, oh, my gosh, and – Everyone was curious. Everyone was kind of cheering for me. And like, it was awesome. Then I graduated to, at the time, the number two court at the US Open, the old grandstand court. And I played Sabatini. Um, It was like a late afternoon match or something. And there was like the first big match I ever played. There was not an empty seat in the whole whole place. I ended up losing that match like 6-3 or 6-4 in the third. And I came off the court and my oldest sister was like crying. And she's like, I can't believe you're like playing at this stage. Like you're, you know, my little sister. And I go like, I can't wait to do it again. And that was like my, that's when my sister always tells me, she's like, that's when I knew you were like going to be a great pro. She's like, you like, and I loved it. And I loved being in that situation. And I didn't win that match, but it kind of changed everything. And it made it like so crystal clear at just 16. Like, yeah, I want to keep doing this. And last but not least, the most important question of every podcast, what is your best advice for the 4-0 singles player? (laughs) Okay, so some people like make tennis look crazy easy. And so when you turn on the tennis channel like all the time and you see the pros and they make it look so easy, know that it is like so incredibly tough. And as we talked about, that's 1,500 balls like every day for 25 years have made those players play that way. So don't have those kind of expectations. Like, I feel like they walk out there thinking, oh, I watched last night. I watched, you know, Svantec play. And this is how, like, I'm going to do this with my backhand. Like, no, no. You have to be, like, realistic with how you're playing and how you're improving, whether you just started and you're going kind of up or if you've kind of plateaued or if, you know, an injury's happened and maybe you feel like your game's dropped a little bit. There's all these different patterns and twists and turns that your game is going to take and know that you're not always going to get better and all these things, but know that the pros make it a lot easier than it is. And it takes, as we mentioned earlier on this podcast, so much hard work and so much time to improve shots. If you've worked on a new volley grip, like don't expect it to be great. Go, you know, use it in a match. Don't be afraid. Take your lumps. You're going to take some losses. 
but then keep working on it because you're going to get better, but you've got to get those reps kind of under your belt. The other thing I used to see all the time is like fighting, you know, in like league matches. I, I used to practice next to like a women's league and I'd always kind of get like the giggles a little bit and just like, you know, enjoy it and move on. If, if you feel like something unfair has happened in a match or a call or you don't like the way the other thing's going with the opponent, you've got to try to just move on, not linger, kind of put that out of your mind and try and reset and refocus. Because in tennis, right, there's no clock. You have a lot of time to kind of turn things around. So don't let one thing that happens out there kind of stay with you. I coached men's D1 for 10 years and things could get pretty rough on the court. And I didn't realize how much worse it could get until I moved to Charleston and saw some women's league matches. And yeah. I was like, that can be vicious. It is amazing. Totally. I Listen, we see it on all levels, right? I've seen it on the junior level, like craziness. I mean, you see it on all levels. You've got to move on, though. You've got to just kind of put it behind you and move on. So, yeah, it's crazy. Some people go into the retaliation mode. Some people go into like, yeah, it's it's wild. It, it literally, and I say this all the time with my kids, is the only sport, and my kids played like every single sport when they were under 10, the only sport that I saw them just give the balls to the kids and tell them to go figure it out. I'm like, you know, and it, it seems so crazy when I'm like in t-ball, they're like helping and, you know, in basketball, they're like out there. No, not in tennis. <laughs> and in like some crazy stuff you're going to see over the years. Lindsay, I can't thank you enough. Uh, you gave us a lot of good stuff here. And I grew up watching you play. You're like a tennis hero of mine. So I got to be honest, I was pretty nervous for this one. But <laughs> you were great. We're, we're so thankful for your time. And thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. I want to thank Lindsay for coming on the show today. I love hearing the mindset from these top players, and I found it so funny how often she thought about the worst-case scenario and the fear that she might lose a match 0-0, even though she was one of the best players of her time. I'm sure many of you out there can relate to those anxious thoughts. But my main takeaway was hearing about her beginning in tennis with Robert Lansdorp and the hundreds of thousands of balls they had to hit to perfect her game and perfect her technique. She also mentioned having to spend several years to learn how to play against a quality slice, and I just visualize her as the best player in the world, working for a year on handling that slice and still losing to a player like Conchita Martinez and how frustrating that must have been for her. So if you're working on a stroke or a tactic and it's been a month or two and you haven't seen improvement, try to stay patient and just keep working. You'll figure it out if you give yourself enough time and hard work. I want to thank you all for listening. I know there are a lot of podcasts out there and I'm grateful you chose to join me today. I'm motivated to evolve and improve, so please subscribe if you enjoyed the episode and leave a comment or review so we keep getting better every week. For more, check out my Instagram at Stokey Tennis for clips from these podcasts as well as general drills and tips to help your tennis game. Thanks for listening. I hope you just improved in tennis without even hitting a ball.